We are looking tonight at Article 22 of the Belgic Confession, found on page 63 in our Three Forms of Unity. Its title is Our Justification Through Faith in Jesus Christ. We believe that to attain the true knowledge of this great mystery, the Holy Spirit kindles in our hearts an upright faith which embraces Jesus Christ with all his merits, appropriates him and seeks nothing more besides him. For it must needs follow either that all things which are requisite to our salvation are not in Jesus Christ, or if all things are in him, that then those who possess Jesus Christ through faith have complete salvation in him. Therefore, for any to assert that Christ is not sufficient, but that something more is required besides him, would be too gross a blasphemy, for hence it would follow that Christ was but half a Savior. Therefore, we justly say with Paul that we are justified by faith alone, or by faith apart from the deeds of the law. However, to speak more clearly, we do not mean that faith itself justifies us, for it is only an instrument with which we embrace Christ our righteousness. But Jesus Christ, imputing to us all his merits and so many holy works which he has done for us and in our stead, is our righteousness. And faith is an instrument that keeps us in communion with him in all his benefits, which, when they become ours, are more than sufficient to acquit us of our sins. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the preceding articles we've talked about the satisfaction of our Lord Jesus Christ for us on the cross. That's articles 20 and 21. And what the confession is talking about there in those articles, of course, is the fact that Christ died for our sins. That's the the basic truth of those two articles. But in taking the next step in this order of salvation, which uh, we have been tracing here in the Belgic Confession, the... Uh, confession recognizes that there is a point which has not yet been touched on in its discussion of the satisfaction of Christ, the payment of the debt of our sins. And that point is, how do we know that Christ has paid for our sins? That's the gap which this article fills. You can see it in the first sentences, in the first lines, rather, of the article. We believe that to attain the true knowledge of this great mystery, that is, the mystery of Christ's satisfaction for us, the Holy Spirit kindles in our hearts an upright faith. So you have the objective fact of the satisfaction of Christ for us, And then in Articles 22 and 23, the knowledge of that fact of Christ's satisfaction under the heading, Justification by Faith. And so, as we are considering this article, there's really two things that we want to talk about. First of all, the idea of justification itself, 
And then in the second place, how faith is the instrument by which we receive the knowledge of that justification. Now the confession here does not enter into a discussion of what justification actually is. We are going to talk about that at a little bit more length than what we have in the confession. In order to understand justification, it's good, I think, to distinguish between justification and sanctification. Justification is a change of our status before God. Sanctification is a change of our condition as sinners. Justification changes our status from guilt before God to innocence before God. Sanctification changes the condition of our natures from being that of sinners to being that of saints. And you may see this distinction, I think, by an illustration from human justice. Let's just imagine for a moment that a man has committed a a crime of theft, that he, he has been arrested for this crime and arraigned for the crime and is now standing before a judge and jury to be tried for that crime of theft. He is, in his condition, a criminal. But it is possible that in the trial there is a miscarriage of justice and he is declared innocent. And so what you have is the man whose condition is that of criminal and whose status before the law is that of innocence. The two do not coincide. And this is exactly uh, how we are before God. God justifies the ungodly. We come before him as sinners. Those whose condition is that of sin. And yet, when we come before him, he declares us righteous. He finds us to be not guilty. And he finds us thus to be not guilty because of the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's after that, then, after he has justified us, that he also begins to sanctify us, to change our condition from that of sinner to saint. And it's very important to recognize that sanctification follows justification. It's not that he sanctifies us first, and then, because he has sanctified us, declares us righteous. No, he justifies us first. And then, because he has justified us, he also sanctifies us. And that's why we cannot speak of justification by works in any sense of the word. Justification is not by works because all our obedience to the law follows our justification, follows 
the great work of the shedding of Christ's blood on our behalf and follows the application of that blood to our guilty consciences. Now, we can also, as we're talking about justification, distinguish very various aspects of this justification. And I want to talk about four different aspects of this justification. In the first place, there is a certain sense in which we may talk about justification as being eternal. Our Lord Jesus Christ is the Lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. And because he was slain from the foundation of the world, no one, as Paul says in Romans 8, can lay anything to the charge of God's elect. And because he is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, God sees his elect always in Christ Jesus. Both before and after conversion, he sees them in Christ Jesus. And he always deals with them not as a righteous judge to condemn their sins and to cast them into hell, but he deals with them as a loving father to lead them on the way to the cross, to bring them to the knowledge of their justification in Christ, so that all the events of a man's life preceding his regeneration or preceding his conversion are designed by God to lead him to the knowledge of his Savior. So that's, I think, what we can say about eternal justification. I know there's been discussion about this in the Reformed tradition for many years, and I think one has to be somewhat careful what one says here, but at least I think we may say that much. That's the first aspect of our justification. The second aspect of our justification is that that justification was objectively accomplished on the cross, in the historical event of the cross. Before we were born, before we had committed any sin, Christ paid the debt for our sin. Christ brought us to the status of righteous in the judgment of God and covered all the sins which we would commit in the future. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 4, verse 25, he was raised again on account of our justification, or he was raised again because of our justification. He had accomplished our justification. He had paid the price for our sins. The justice of God was satisfied. And God put his stamp of approval on the work of the Lord Jesus Christ by raising him from the dead. He said really in that raising Christ from the dead, the work is finished. All my elect have been justified. Christ has paid the debt of their sins. And never again will any one of them come under my judgment or be condemned 
before me. So that's the objective fact, and that's really what the confession is talking about in Articles 20 and 21, isn't it? When it talks about the satisfaction of the justice of God by the shedding of the blood of Jesus Christ. Justification was accomplished at the cross once and for all. The third aspect of our justification, then, is what we have come to know as justification in the forum of the conscience. And this is really what the Confession is talking about in Articles 22 and 23. That is, that our Lord Jesus Christ, by his death, has not only paid the debt of our sins, but now he applies his blood to our guilty consciences and washes us from the guilt of our sins. He brings to our guilty souls the knowledge that he has paid the price for our sins, that our sins are forgiven in his blood, and that we stand before our Father in heaven as those who are righteous, as those who have no sin. It is as if, as our catechism says in Lord's Day 23, we never had had nor committed any sin. And we stand before God boldly, knowing that our sins are forgiven. This is what David talks about in Psalm 32, when he says at the beginning of that uh, that psalm, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. He had experienced that blessing himself. And he talks about the other side of his life, the guilt of his life in verses 3 and 4. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. That was the guilt of his sin, weighing down on him, pressing him, drying out his being. But then he says, I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. That's justification, then, in the forum of the conscience. The knowledge that Christ gives us of his justifying work on our behalf. And then we may talk about one more aspect of our justification. And again, we have to be careful, I think, of our language here. But we may, I think, speak of a final justification when we stand in the judgment of God. Not a justification in the sense that we need still to have the blood of Christ uh, applied to us, that we need still forgiveness of sins. That's taken care of. But justification in this sense, that God at his final justification, at his final judgment, silences all our accusers and removes from us forever all the sense of guilt that sometimes at least afflicts us here 
in this life so that we rejoice forevermore in a perfect assurance that all our sins throughout all of our life are indeed forgiven and never again doubt and never again fear the righteous wrath of God. So those are the things that I wanted to say about justification. Now we turn to the subject of faith. And as I've already suggested, faith takes its place in that third aspect of our justification. That is, the knowledge of our justification, the knowledge of our righteousness in Christ. As the article says, we believe that to attain the true knowledge of this great mystery, the Holy Spirit kindles in our hearts an upright faith. Now there are a number of things that we should talk about in connection with faith. Again, the confession does not attempt here to define faith. And so I want to take us back again to the Heidelberg Catechism and to its definition of faith in Lord's Day 7, question and answer 21, on pages 22 and 23 in our three forms of unity. What is true faith? True faith is not only a sure knowledge whereby I hold for truth all that God has revealed to us in his word, but also a hearty trust which the Holy Spirit works in me by the gospel that not only to others but to me also forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness and salvation are freely given by God merely of grace only for the sake of Christ's merits. Notice two things that belong to faith according to that question and answer. The first thing is a sure knowledge whereby I hold for truth all that God has revealed to us in his word. That that is, faith is intellectual assent to the truth of the gospel. It is holding for true all that God has revealed in his word. That's the first part of faith. And the second part of faith is hearty trust that this truth of the gospel applies to me. That not only to others, but to me also, forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness and salvation are freely given by God, merely of grace, only for the sake of Christ's merits. Faith is that confidence I have that the promise of the gospel is for me, that God has not only accomplished forgiveness of sins in the death of Christ, but that he has accomplished the forgiveness of my sins in the blood of Christ, that he has forgiven me, that he has received me as one of his children, And that he intends to bless me with all the blessings that are in Christ Jesus, my Lord. 
But we also need to pay attention, I think, to what the article in the, in the Confession says about this faith. And there are quite a number of things that the Confession says. In the first place, we note again that the Holy Spirit kindles faith in our hearts. That is, faith is not a product of our own wills. It doesn't exist in us naturally. And we do not, by an exercise of our wills, believe the gospel or believe that that gospel is for me. The carnal mind is enmity against God and is not subject to the law of God. The carnal mind flees from God. The carnal mind rejects the truth of the gospel. The carnal mind cannot perceive the things that are spiritual. Only the Holy Spirit can give to us that perception. We believe by the power of the Holy Spirit. Again, the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 9, 19 rather, we believe according to the working of his mighty power. We believe according to the working of his mighty power. It is the mighty power of God working in us that creates in us this faith. Now, we may also point out here that this faith is not worked in us immediately, but that God uses means to accomplish this faith in us, what we call the means of grace, especially the preaching of the gospel, the administration of the sacraments, and the exercise of Christian discipline. The preaching of the gospel, the administration of the sacraments, and the exercise of Christian discipline. According to our catechism again, these means of grace, it is by these means of grace that God works faith in us and that God also maintains and nourishes that faith in us. So that's the first thing. It's a gift of God. It's not our own work. The second thing that the confession says is that this is an upright faith that the Holy Spirit kindles. And I think what the confession is saying there is that the faith that the Holy Spirit kindles is a faith that produces the fruit of good works. As James says in James chapter 2, he says there is such a thing perhaps as a dead faith. The devils believe and tremble. But he also says, I will show you my faith by my works. Faith produces works. Faith produces obedience. Not so that we may be justified, as we've already noted, but because we have been justified. It is a living faith not a dead faith, then, that justifies us. The third thing which the confession says is that this faith embraces Jesus Christ with all his merits, appropriates him, 
and seeks nothing more besides him. Now that's strong language. First of all, it embraces him. When you embrace somebody, of course, you are expressing your love for that person and your delight in that person. And that's exactly what we are doing with Christ. We come to know through the grace of God, we come to know that he is our righteousness and we hug him to ourselves with love and delight. That's what David is talking about when he says, blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven. He has embraced the promise of God in Christ Jesus. He has taken hold of that promise of God and and made it his own and he has uh, learned to love and delight in that and he feels himself to be abundantly blessed. So that's the first language. That's faith embraces Jesus Christ with all its merits. The second word that the confession uses here is the word appropriates. And again, that's a strong word. We might use that word in certain contexts. We might say, for example, Johnny appropriated for himself the truck that belonged to his brother. And we we mean by that, of course, that he has taken that truck as if it's his own. He has seized it, and sometimes perhaps he has even seized it against his brother's will. He has uh, done violence to his brother in order to get it. He's pushed him away from it, or he has snatched it out of his hand, or whatever it may be. He's appropriated it for himself. And this is exactly the kind of idea, I think, that the confession has in mind here. Jesus said about the kingdom, the violent take it by force. And I think what he meant was that for all these many, many years, the people of God had been waiting for the kingdom of heaven to come. And finally, when it came, they could not restrain themselves. They rushed upon that kingdom and appropriated it and seized upon it and took hold of it. And said, this is what we've been waiting for all these years. There was a certain violence, at least a a certain urgency about it. And this is exactly the idea here. There's an urgency which we have about seizing hold of Christ in order that we may be relieved from the guilt of our sins. And know that God is for us in Christ Jesus. Paul uses similar language in Philippians chapter 3. He's been talking in the early part of that chapter about his uh, love for the work of Christ and how he counted all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ and how he pursues the righteousness and life that are in Christ But he says in verse 12, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. And he says, notice there at the end that he says, Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. Christ Jesus has taken possession of me. Christ Jesus has seized me and and appropriated me for his own. And now, because he has done that, I press on that I may appropriate, 
take hold of, take possession of that for which he has taken possession of me. Faith appropriates Christ. Thirdly, the confession says, faith seeks nothing more besides him. Now we're going to come back to that point in a moment. There's just one thing that I want to say about it here, and that is that this language suggests that this taking hold of Christ is not a thing that is once and done. But this taking hold of Christ, this appropriating Him, this seeking Him, this embracing Him is a daily thing. We sin daily. And in our sins we seek Him. And we embrace Him. And we appropriate Him. So that we may know that our sins are forgiven. So that's the third thing that we wanted to say about faith. The fourth thing is that the confession makes a point here that faith itself does not justify us. We we read in Genesis 15 that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. And we read in Romans chapter 4 as Paul discusses that passage in Genesis chapter 15 that faith is imputed to us for righteousness. It would be easy for us to misunderstand that language and say, it's the faith itself which justifies us. And the Arminians really kind of said that at the time of the um, canons of Dort. They said God accepts faith and the imperfect obedience of faith as a substitute for perfect obedience to the law. Of course, if one obeys the law perfectly, if one has never transgressed, if one has no transgressions, he's justified before God. But none of us is in that condition. None of us can be justified that way. The Arminians also admitted that. But they said then, but if you believe, and if your faith is a living faith, and your your faith produces works, that faith and that imperfect obedience of faith is a substitute for perfect obedience to the law. Your faith is your righteousness. And our confession emphatically rejects that notion in the second paragraph when it says, however, to speak more clearly, we do not mean that faith itself justifies us, for it is only an instrument with which we embrace Christ our righteousness. Christ is our righteousness, not our faith. Our faith is not our righteousness. Christ is our righteousness. But faith is that which keeps us in communion with Christ. Faith is that which appropriates Christ as our righteousness. Faith is that which daily receives Christ and his righteousness for our justification. 
So faith is not our righteousness, but faith is the instrument of our justification in the forum of our consciences. And the final thing which the confession says then about this faith is that it stands alone. It seeks nothing more besides Christ. Now that is an emphatic rejection of the teaching of Rome. Because, of course, if you sought forgiveness, absolution of your sins through the Church of Rome, the priest would tell you, go and do these acts of penance. Go and say so many Hail Marys or so many Our Fathers. Go and do these good works or go and do this or that. You need to do penance in order to receive forgiveness. And this is an easy thing to persuade men of. We have these inclinations even ourselves sometimes. I think every one of us would admit to having this kind of inclination. We sin, we know we're guilty, we feel guilty. And what do we do? We say to ourselves, well, I can make up for it by being good. I'll do some extraordinary good work. I'll give some extra money to the poor. I'll make some extra sacrifices for my wife's sake or for my children's sake. I'll do this or that, and that will help to make up for my sin. We may even do this with a person we have sinned against. We feel guilty because we have injured somebody. We've uh, somehow hurt their feelings or we've done some other kind of injury to this person and we know that we were cruel and unkind and unloving and that we've sinned against that person. But instead of confessing our sins, we just try to make up for it by being extra nice to that person for a while. Sometimes, instead of trying to be good, we try to punish ourselves for our sins. We deny ourselves things that we like. Or we say, I'll be, we say to ourselves anyway, I'll be really sorry for what I've done. And that should be enough then to atone for my sins. We try to add works to the grace of God. But faith seeks nothing more beside Christ. We are justified, Romans 3 verse 28 says, without the deeds of the law. You do not justify yourself in the presence of God by self-flagellation, nor do you justify yourself in the presence of God by doing good. You justify yourself in the presence of God by nothing except the blood of Christ. That's even bad language. You cannot be justified in the sight of God except by the blood of Christ. But look at this, how this works in David's own experience in 2 Samuel 12. 
He had committed adultery with Bathsheba. He had stolen another man's wife. To cover up his sin, he had murdered her husband. Nathan the prophet comes and brings this sin to his knowledge. And David says, I have sinned. And the answer to his confession is not, go and do works of penance. The answer to his confession is, God has also forgiven your sins. That's how God's forgiveness works. We confess our sins, we seek him in our Savior Jesus Christ, and he forgives immediately, instantaneously, freely, merely by his grace, without any merit of ours, altogether apart from the works of the law. We must not try to mix works with faith or with grace. Because works destroy grace. And faith says, not I can help God along or I can help Christ along. But faith says, all my righteousness is in Christ. And so the confession concludes with the language, those who possess Christ have a complete salvation. In him. His merits are more than sufficient to acquit us of all our sins. And to assert anything else is blasphemy against him because it makes him only half a savior. This blessing of justification is one of the greatest, if not the greatest, of the blessings of salvation. Indeed, blessed is the man whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is he to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. May God bless you with his word.